Ratchaloonie. What it is. What are you doing? Chilling. What have you been doing? We just went and Buck got him a new gun. We just went to shoot it a little bit. Yeah. Been working. Doing some more of that working, you know, and I know you like that. Yeah. Yeah, I know that that's all you say you do. You Let's uh let's talk about that tire that's in the back of your truck. Oh, yeah. My tractor tire, son. I well, got it. What you got planned on that tar? I'll do some flipping, dragging it, picking it up. I might, I might even throw it. Whoa. Whoa. You going to throw it? Throwing it. You got another big tire you're talking about getting, too, ain't you? Yeah. It's too big to fit in the bed of my truck. Right. So I got to put so it in your You got to put it in the man's truck. Yeah. That Chevrolet. Yeah, Chevrolet. 2500. HD. 8.1 liter. Vortec. <laughs> Gassing on it, son. Won't fit in that baby Ford Ranger, will it? Step side. That Ford Ranger will outhaul <clears throat> your truck any day of the week. Come on, man. Come on. Just letting you know. Come up a cloud while ago. It did. I, I hope the. I hope this rain don't come in and get in the sound of the podcast because it was pouring down rain. It was. It ain't now, though. Yeah. Doing pretty good. We got a guest with us today. Your new uncle. <laughs> my new brother-in-law. <laughs> Mr. Cody Bryant. What's going on? What's up with you? Y'all say mo, say mo. Trying to get healthy, stay healthy. There you go. Trying to get healthy. That's what Coney's doing, flipping this tire. Yeah. I've seen that tire. I was outside hitting my jock this morning in the driveway, my jog walk, and Cody let them rat-headed dogs out. <laughs> and uh, they come running up at me like I'd stole something, barking up there, pitching a fit. Daddy, Daddy says the, the back of my truck looks like a hobo's truck. Well, you got, it looks I got like. A, you, I got, yeah, you you describe it to them. Well, it, it looks like everything you could possibly need for the for whatever trip you're about to go on. It looks like you're just about to travel across the country and do nothing. That's what the bed of a working man's truck looks like, son. No. Oh, that, yeah. That You got three empty hydraulic buckets, a tractor tar, fishing poles. Uh, two, wa- two water hoses. Water hose. I got a bunch of, of old uh, two-gallon motor oil uh, buckets down there. A bunch there, of antifreeze is buckets. Is your cooler? No, your cooler's in the kitchen. Yeah. Looks like a mess, dude. You need I got to I got the pins to the 200. That track hoe down in there. Right. Well, but, if you're going to enter that uh, truck in the truck show... The truck rally, whatever. The off-road show in downtown Dallas. You're going to have to clean that rig up, Oh, I'm going to. I'm going to shine her up make it look good. Okay. You think you you can get it cleaned up, Cody? I don't know. Right now, it looks like he's trying to assemble a hobo's pontoon boat. (laughs) (laughs) On your scale of 1 to 10, on the the scale of Fred Sanford, you remember that truck Lamont used to drive? Yeah. And it was loaded slap down with junk. On your scale of one to ten, being ten being Lamont's truck, <laughs> and one being showroom, right? What is Cooney's? Oh, he's a solid eight right now. I totally agree. Solid eight. If you open, have you opened the inside of the truck? I've been in the inside of that truck, and uh, mm. that I think with the inside, you have to bump it up to a nine. 
bump it up. Too. Really? We're going to be like that? Easily. <laughs> your truck is a disaster, man. Have you seen your truck? But my truck is from pure work. No. Not from just straight up nastiness. Mine ain't from straight up nastiness. Yours is from not taking care of your stuff. I got two grocery bags laying in the floorboard. And those are probably full of trash along with the no. other trash that's holding the grocery bags down from blowing out the window <laughs> when the windows are down. <laughs> no. The back the back seat is not full of trash either. It has got cardboard boxes right. that have stuff in them. It's got a lunch my lunch box. And I got my 12-inch sub back there. Right. So it ain't really junked up. It just ain't got no nothing, no room back you there. You just ain't got no room for nothing. Is that what you're trying yeah. to say? Yeah. It ain't junk. It's stuff I need in my truck. Okay. I disagree. Well, I totally I totally disagree. You don't drive the truck, so you don't know what needs to be in it anyway. Do y'all need me to set the mood? Because <laughs> I, I can, uh, we got a lot of feedback on me setting the mood. Yeah. And yeah. I think people really dig me setting the mood. Set the mood. I, well, if I set the mood, one of you's got to finish what I what I say. But so here's my question: Is this set the mood going to be the same as the last set the mood? No. So it's going to be a different person. Diff, a different set in the mood. A different impression. Yeah. Okay. Right, so are you going to finish? One of us will finish it. All right. Y'all ready? Go. Yeah. Drinking was forbidden in my Christian country home. I learned to play the flat top on them good old gospel songs. songs. <laughs> there y'all go. <laughs> then I heard about the bar room just, just across the Georgia line. Right, that's good. You did yeah. it. <laughs> what song is that, Cooney? That's uh, My Home's in Alabama by Alabama. By Alabama. Now, don't y'all see how that the mood is set? The mood is set. Everybody started bobbing their heads when I said drinking was forbidden. And everybody's like, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> got that mood going. We got Cody with us today on the Red-Blooded Outdoors podcast. And it was so, it's sort of fitting that uh, Cody is with us. And y'all will sort of, with what Cooney said we just did, y'all will sort of see why here in a second. Uh, Cody, how old are you? 38. 38. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Your childhood. Well, uh, born and raised in Paulding County. Lived in Burnt Hickory for most of my life. Paulding County, GA. That's right. Go dogs. <laughs> we uh, grew up when I was about... Uh, 12 um, my uncles got me into hunting and fishing did them did that most of my life uh, hadn't got to hunt in a few years um, come from a single mama and uh, grandparents were a big influence in our life uh, my granddaddy taught me how to do a lot of stuff taught me how to do uh, taught me how to work taught me how to earn a living and uh, spent eight years as a paramedic uh, in Paulding County up until 2008 and after a few years after that I started a custom woodworking business and had been building custom furniture and the last time I counted I had built 234 dining tables in a matter of about five or six years 
234 dining tables. That's a lot of food, son. That's a lot of food. We're we talking uh, from your regular old four, four-seater four dining tables on mm-hmm. up to what? Uh, I've built them anywhere from four feet long. The longest one that I ever put in a house was 10 feet long, and the longest table I ever built was 14 feet long. Big boy. Oh, if yeah, I talking about a lot of people eating supper on that table, son. Yes, sir. So what... what uh? When you think of a dining table, Coney, what kind of wood do you think it's made out of? Uh, so ask, Con- ask Cody, say, Cody, I want a dining table. All right, Cody, I'm, I've come to you here today mm-hmm. to uh, look at getting a dining table built for this new house I've got. Yep. What would, what would be your recommended type of wood for my family to eat meals off of? Well, I typically, if your budget allows for it, I always go for a hardwood, something like oak or walnut, uh, maple, if you can you know if your budget allows for it but you can build them out of pine too built a lot of them out of pine old sawmill pine and uh it takes me about from start to finish i'm be done in a week from about, start to finish what about a cedar table i've never built one out of cedar um but i've built them out of i've built them out of pine walnut maple oak mahogany uh not really a whole lot of exotics but a lot of you domestics the the biggest one I ever built was out of hickory and that was that was a chore son that mm-hmm. table tabletop if it weighed every bit of 400 pounds it weighed an ounce it was a it was a monster you, you cedar stuff raccoon is like you chest people, chest wardrobes wardrobes stuff like that yeah. I, I ain't saying there ain't a cedar dining room table but i ain't never seen one. um i've never seen one not yeah. off the top of my head that i can think not to say that people ain't done it but um i've never seen one it's most of the time people don't use it because you get that aromatic cedar that cedar smell yeah. and you don't really yeah. want it you know transferring into your living room or something yeah. like Until that thanksgiving dinner yeah. yeah i want that cedar ham you want cedar ham? That's cedar casserole, that's, son. That cedar cream corn. Oh yeah. Mm-mm. No, you can have that. Yeah. <laughs> that don't that don't even make no sense, Cody. Just you, telling you. Maybe I need to reset the mood. You're getting a little crazy. Oh. Uh, yeah. What about that barn wood, man? Have y'all seen them people on TV that? Uh, I think they're out of Tennessee. I ain't a hundred percent sure. The barnwood builders. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they're out of West Virginia. Okay. Yeah, they. Um, I watch. I think I ain't. I've never missed an episode of that show. They go around and rescue 150 hundred and fifty, two hundred, two hundred fifty year old hand hewn log cabins. And if you want to really look at the quintessential American icon, it's got to be an, a hand hewn cabin. That's what settlers made their existence out of that was important and um back then you had a man that could go out into the woods with nothing but an axe and build a home and it was going to take him a minute but he could build a home with nothing but just one tool a lot a lot of the stuff they're after uh on that show is the structural stuff right the, the beams the beams and the logs out mm. of the cabins right but now the the actual wood the, the siding so to speak yeah, that comes into play a lot. Yeah, they, they some people doing some real good looking stuff. Flooring, a lot of comes into flooring. Right. Yeah. Right. You ever seen that show, Cooney? Yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. watched that many a time. Them jeffers don't play around, man. They'll show up cranes and sky lifts and oh, yeah. lifts and lulls and they get serious about that wood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That uh, that looks like it'd be fun. 
Oh, yeah. I don't think I'd want to do it to make a living out of it. Now you see them crawling under them barns and they there are cabins and they're dilapidated and yeah, you ain't gonna get me crawling under one of them about to fall down and it's been sitting up there that long it's about time for it to calm down yeah i wonder uh that, that's interesting i often thought man how, how how would a man get into that type of market and you know they go to they got these people that buy it and uh yeah it's just real interesting to me it, it's an it's an it's a very cool market i think you know that especially you see something that iconic and that was built with somebody's own two hands and somebody cares enough about it to want to save it and and keep it you know around and turn it into it and make money off of it at the same time so i think they're i think they're really neat that they go out and do that now now does that type of wood right there does it cost more per board foot than a regular store-bought two before yeah it does it can depend um a lot of what you see from a hand-hewn cabin or, or barns cabins cabin logs are hewn on one side or and on two sides a barn beam's hewn on all four sides um you'll get some of them that may not be good all the way through but they'll put them on a sawmill and saw the boards out of them that's what you would call true old growth timber that that tree could have been 150 years old when they started taking an axe to it so those could have been that's a 300 year old piece of wood and as a craftsman there's nothing like old growth timber this stuff that you get today you know you you look at a two by four from 100 years ago compared to what a two by four is now it's nowhere near the same thing nowhere near the same thing but it's very valuable they do a lot with it you know depending on the species you can um especially in the appalachian mountains um tulip poplar was used a lot white oak was your bottom logs and your seal beams then you get tulip poplar going up because i mean you got to stack these things so the lighter the wood the easier it is to stack i mean it just depends it really depends on the type of wood but for the age of it yeah that's what really makes it worth a lot of money hmm. what you think couldn't you trying to get into wood business i don't know Still, like I said, it still seems pretty sketchy to me. It's high. Your own it's and all uh, that. Yeah, it's it's high dollar right now, son. Oh yeah. It uh, the uh, so you, what exactly was your job when you was on the ambulance? You said you did that for eight years. I was a paramedic. I um, rolled in as an EMT and rolled right back into paramedic school because that's just what I felt like doing. Went to school for, I believe it was a year and a half. And uh, worked right here in Paulding County for Clark Ambulance when it was still, you know, Clark Ambulance. And that's some of the best memories that I have. And that was, I loved that job more than anything. It was never dull. You was always going to get to see something different. Something new was going to happen. And I, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. That uh, was you primarily, how did, how did they work their shifts? Did they, they work them like the police department here uh, in Dallas? No, we, we typically, when I became a paramedic, we were short-staffed. But typically it was... 24 on and 48 off but i think the longest shifts i ever worked i think i stayed there for like a week before i went home before because we didn't have nobody to work really and they uh i noticed they got houses i guess the company ran out and uh they stay in those houses and yeah i would say until you get a call but they stay bumping son oh yeah Mm -hmm. they stay rolling 
it's very very rarely do you see one of them ambulances parked at one not of anymore and, not yeah. anymore with the way paulton county grew i think when i started there we averaged we ran three trucks 24 hours a day and we averaged maybe 250 to 300 calls a month and from 02 to like 2007 we went from 300 calls a month to 3,000 calls a month and you were we had six 24-hour trucks and two that just ran a 12-hour truck i mean we them nights of being on the truck and sleeping all night long <clears throat> they were gone right you right. know you was you were up and hopping i mean you you might get breakfast and then you might not get breakfast so right. we stayed hopping and stayed busy with it that uh you know the <clears throat> i'm sure you get asked all the time what's the the craziest thing and you know in people's minds they want to uh they want to hear about the blood and guts mm-hmm. you know what i mean oh yeah but I, you know for somebody like me or cody we've you know we've seen that and i, th- I think as a police officer in assisting the emts the things the one thing that stuck out with me the most is when somebody was having a diabetic would you call it a spell yeah it's a diabetic episode yeah how you would go in into their house either <clears throat> their loved ones called you you know we don't know what's wrong with them mm-hmm. and nine times out of ten and i'm not trying to be stereotypical you would have to fight this person yeah. that does not know what in the world is going on don't know who you are some of them don't know who they are Mm-mm. uh just i don't want to say that it was being mean and hateful but you could just about guarantee uh what is it sugar drops real yeah, low usually typically what happens is you know every diabetic's different and when their sugar drops to a certain point um they become combative they they can they want to fight with you and, and they really don't know what they're doing no, they they're ain't just, got a clue they ain't got a clue what they're doing and most of the time when you fix that problem they wake up and they're so apologetic they're like oh my gosh i'm so sorry are y'all okay you know most of them did that with us we used to have one guy that was a bodybuilder and his sugar would crash and every time we'd go over he'd want to fight with you and it'd take us and the fire department before we could give him a little injection sit there for about 15 20 minutes and get it to correct he'd wake up and look at us and say i'm sorry are y'all okay yeah we're all right you know so yeah and it, i mean he was at least once a week he just wasn't eating right just wasn't eating the way he was supposed to you know you you don't think about it uh you don't think about somebody that's on an ambulance as being in that role right yeah as being in that role of having to wrestle somebody to give them medical attention and i was surprised at how much it happens it happens we, a lot and uh th- you know like i said this ain't knocking nobody but you get someone that's schizophrenic and not on their meds it, at dallas when i was there dallas georgia we had there were supposed to be three on a shift but it was always seemed like it just lined up to be two all the time because you got training yeah you got people off and so a lot of times what they do and i'm sure it's like this pretty much everywhere else when you get one of those calls where somebody's off their meds Mm -hmm. or somebody's being combative fire 
and ambulance would right. stage and wait on the police officers to get there. And I don't care how anybody lines it up or says it, but the police go in first yep. for one reason only, to put their hands on these people. Because we're not the ones with that's the paramedics. Mm. Now, there are some some police officers, yeah. EMTs and paramedics. None of us at Dallas was. And it wasn't... It wasn't a thing where we wasn't offered the training. They're just it never. We was never fully enough staffed for anybody to do it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, so when you get there, and I, the reason I'm getting at this is when you was talking about that shot, mm -hmm. and I, I don't know what that is. We'll get to that in a second. But when you get there, and schizophrenic, diabetic episode, th this person is needing medical attention there is a difference between fighting somebody like uh which you shouldn't do but getting upset and fist fighting with somebody and a difference and holding somebody down until they can get in there with the stretcher and get them tied down on the stretcher that will wear your tail out and I don't know what it is. Uh, it, and there's a difference between fighting somebody and trying to get handcuffs on somebody. They're all three different things. So as yeah. a police officer, you're not fighting nobody with your fist anyway. You know what I'm saying? You're not. That scenario's out. So you've got either you're fighting to hold somebody down, you're fighting to get somebody on the ambulance. Are you fighting for your life? One of those three. And a lot of people, I don't think, understand how it can snap like that and go from trying to do either of the two that you see as the lesser threat to all of a sudden you're fighting for your life when it's extended period of time, right? Because uh -huh. the EMTs and the fire can come in there, and you've done been wrestling with these people for five Five ten minutes. Five ten minutes. A, a lot of times, if like Cody was saying, uh, you get to know the people, mm -hmm. and you pretty much knew how the scenario was going to play out, and it would be to where we would have them standing at the door, so they could come in as quick as possible, because also you don't want to wear that person out. To that point either because mm -mm. there's all kinds of medical things that can go along with with somebody exerting themselves that hard and that them not knowing that they're doing it they're not in the right state of mind the go yeah. and stop is it they're not processing that you see what i'm saying but you don't think a lot of people don't think about the uh the ambulance drivers and the rescue having to do that too because it isn't always uh them sitting there waiting a lot of times when you go into a situation and you're trying to talk somebody in maybe and going into the ambulance peacefully right yeah and uh, i don't did you ever go through the crisis intervention training uh no i didn't um <clears throat> we um 
you know and it's, and it's like you said you know the first thing we were always taught in emt and paramedic school was scene safety scene safety scene safety if your scene's not safe and you're not safe you can't help your patient and that puts you know being police that puts y'all on on the front lines you know for whatever's going on and there are times yeah that you know stuff just like you said it's just it happened like that right they you get um people like you said are schizophrenic diabetic on drugs you never really know and um they're sort of just calm and it's like a jekyll and hyde scenario and they just do a complete 180 and the next thing you know you've got you know them fighting with the police and you try to back out and you know and, and things like that and let you know let y'all do your job because you know y'all carry handcuffs i got a clipboard and a computer right so yeah I've, it's dangerous i've seen the clipboards and computers have uh, have to be used too well yeah i mean so so what i'm saying is is you know people really doesn't realize have you ever thought about that county that uh hey i want to go drive an ambulance that there is going to be calls out there where you're going to be not that the per not that these people are a danger or a threat they're just in a state in a in a medical condition where they don't know what they're doing you have got to help them you have no choice they have i mean you have to not just because of your job but because it's the right thing to do and which means you might have to wrestle them down because nine times out of ten once they're in the ambulance they belong to the ambulance driver Mm -hmm. we had two people on shift if the county was busy and nobody could come sit with another officer there wasn't one of us to ride with them now i have had to ride in the ambulance with them um because the patient could not be in a police car he was having to have medical attention on the way to the hospital and maybe he was either under arrest or maybe it was evident that this person was going to become combative or the potential was there to become combative on the way to the hospital and you want to talk about wrestling in the back of a ambulance that's going 65 70 miles an hour beating and bumping (laughs) they ain't nowhere to go jack they ain't nowhere to go and it ain't fun at all no i never thought that many fights broke out in the paramedic world oh yeah oh yeah it's so is it a thing where like almost every time there's an ambulance there, there's going to be a police there? Not nah. every time. Yeah, no. It, it just depends on the type of call. Like if um, it depends on how it's dispatched. And, and a lot of times we've met sheriff's office, Dallas PD, Hiram PD there, and they already be there. But a lot of times we've got there, and I've clicked over on the radio. You know, to Paulton, can you send sheriff's department dallas pd we we need them out here and we just kind of back out let them come in and do their thing and then we come in and do our thing um it, it's a lot of people don't think about it that way you know i i grew up around um police officers emts paramedics firemen and that was all i ever wanted to do and um when i got into it I remember, without going into too much detail, my first call, my first thought in my mind was, what have I got myself into? But then that adrenaline kicks in, and, man, it's it's just go. And it's just go. And as you get more experience and more training, you know, that first day, second day, first year on the job, that stuff just sort of fades away. The, 
Yeah. The shock. The the awe. It just the, becomes another day at the office. Yep. The, the the what what to do. You just with your training and experience you just you just know what to it's do. All, it's all like muscle memory. And, now. and like he said, it's the safety. You you got your safety in mind, you got the people that's there with these people in mind, their safety in mind, uh the EMTs, rescue I mean, you got a lot of different people's safety in mind. It ain't just kick the door and grab somebody by the hair of the head and say, "Come on, you're going in the ambulance." For I mean, we always try to talk them into it first. Yeah, and there's laws too. I mean, if, yeah, if they look like and appear to be, you know, in their right mind, they say, "I don't want to go." I can't take them. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Now sometimes the sheriff's office can make them go if they have to but a lot of the laws that we follow if you say you don't want to go sign this piece of paper and then we leave that's right. it that's all there is to it yeah now if somebody's having a uh i guess for lack of better words a, a mental uh crisis and it, they need to be 10 13 which means they're they are clearly in uh, danger to their self right. and or the people around them or could be dangerous to people that's not even involved with them then they have to be evaluated for a do- uh, by a doctor can you remember how many hours it is um, 72 or 48 I think they, a doctor can initially hold you for 72 hours now most of the time you know they would get taken to the hospital and then ship somewhere for that 72 hours um but if they ever popped up and say, you know, I want to harm myself, well, you're 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 ten thirteen, you're going. Yeah, and um, it's or a any, long process. If you got any type of uh, suicidal tendencies right. or if anything, and there's laws that says if you see if this person meets this criteria, you have no other choice but to take them to the hospital. Yep. At all, right? So then, so then you're uh, then you're you're trying to get a person to go to the hospital under this criteria that has now become combative and is um, for lack of better words, in in their mind, a lot of them think they're fighting for their life, superhuman strength almost. Right, and ju- just 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 think, try to fathom in your mind trying to deal with somebody that's fighting for their life it's hard to fathom isn't it it's hard it's hard to fathom if you've never been there it's hard to fathom um i mean i guess you have to call it wrestling because you're not Mm -hmm. fighting them no you're you're not actively being aggressive toward them Mm -hmm. to me that's more wearing out you know how many you get out here in the yard and i'm not trying to make light of the situation and We'll play fight, and I'll punch you and pull your hair and push yeah. you down. Yeah. You know, we're we're going pretty hard, right? Yeah. Well, you used to wrestle. You know how hard wrestling was. Yeah. Is that not a lot harder than actual fighting? Oh, yeah. It's a lot more tiring. Mm-hmm. Right. So now put in the aspect that you're trying not to break somebody's arm while they're fighting for their life put in the aspect that you're trying not to to hurt them physically while you're trying to uh, get them to go to the hospital tie that into it it makes it even harder 
because if you've got somebody let's say you've got somebody in a an americana or a camora mm-hmm. and you know you know for a fact if you wrench down on this that the normal person is going to say okay i'm going to go i'm going to go to the hospital but somebody that's in a a mental crisis may not be feeling that kind of pain their pain threshold may be way above way way above what what uh what you're even thinking it is and uh it could be i mean you could literally break their arm and still be wrestling mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen that but uh i i feel there was a lot of situations where if i didn't have the help from the ambulance drivers or rescue that that might have had to have been an option you know what i'm saying yeah and all in the name of taking somebody to the hospital so did you did you ever have to tase anybody to get them to just just to get them to stop like that y'all had been wrestling with them so long that you just that was your last resort was to tase or something like that to get them to stop so you could get them in the ambulance normally all right so i went through the crisis intervention training and uh I don't remember everything, so I don't want to butcher it up too much. But it was a it was a criteria, a, a system set up to deal with people that were in mental crisis. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, with with different things you try to implement, you try to find some common ground. Uh, try to find some common ground with them. Try to basically become their friend. You never lied to them. Because you you never lied to them because you didn't want to tell them that you you don't have to go to the hospital just because when when you told them they didn't have to go to a hospital i.e. being an example well what happens to the hospital staff once they get there and they was told they didn't have to go to the hospital right now now the person at the hot that you took to the hospital <clears throat> mad. At that, that they're at the hospital right and they're trying to get mad at the staff there right so so you, that's just an example of why you didn't tell them a lie uh you always your last resort was to put hands on somebody let's say for example if i was there and we would do this too if if um i'm trying to remember the name was it clark's when i was there I what year did you start uh 2011 Mm, uh, it might still be in, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, say Clark's was there, ambulance service. Yeah. And uh, I just wasn't getting anywhere with this person. And one of the ambulance EMTs, paramedics, start talking to him, and they may fall in love with him. may do anything in the world for him. You know what I'm saying? Or vice versa. Maybe one of them's already there talking and <coughs> And I walk in, and they notice me, or what's up? And I'm like, hey, you know, all right, Jimmy, we got to go to the hospital just like last time, man. Let's just do it, get it over with, and you get back on your meds, you'll be back home, dude, playing your guitar. I mean, you got to know these people and and what they were doing and the things they liked. And uh, it's uh, – so you try to meet that criteria – uh, in order to not have to put hands on them because you did not want to hurt them. You didn't want to make it worse. 
so you never threatened them so so you think in your head you was talking about the taser I don't have to tell somebody I'm going to tase them in order for them being in a mental crisis to feel threatened by the taser what would make you feel threatened about a taser Cooney other than me saying I'm about to tase you I don't reckon anything well sure if I pulled the taser out would you then not feel threatened you, um, you would think oh I'm about to get tased yeah if I'm yeah. the one that that's the call's been put out on like right. if I'm the suspect or whatever you call it right well yeah I mean these people aren't suspects they're in a in a medical crisis here yeah. you see what I'm saying if somebody's sugar's real low what, what do you know the medical term for that Cody uh yeah it's um oh it's leaving my uh, it's hypoglycemia hypoglycemia so if somebody is being combative and their sugar's low or they got something else going on I mean why I want to tase them or pepper spray them you see what I'm saying yeah so that was that was that only was an option if uh if it was an absolute have to to protect myself one of the EMTs, paramedics, somebody off the rescue truck, a family or friend that was already there at the house. That was only where that uh, option come from. I had been in situations to where they said, no, I'm not getting in the ambulance. Maybe they had a bad experience with an ambulance or maybe they was just weirded out by it. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're not going to get in the ambulance in the name of not having to put hands on these people, how about I take you to the hospital and I'm going to get them to follow me just in case, right? Yeah. Just in case. But, Jimmy, realize you are in a police car. So if you get in the back of a police car, what has to happen? Well, I have to be in handcuffs. You have to be in handcuffs. Absolutely, Jimmy. So then they're in handcuffs. Then we're going to the hospital. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, I have had it to where these people, somebody was just not going to put handcuffs on. But they wanted to go in the police car. They didn't want to go in the ambulance. I have had it where they wanted nothing in the world to deal with police. Because the last police that had been there, and it's not knocking on them, they just had a bad experience. So they, we would stay in the yard in case... You know, we heard screaming, hollering, or y'all help us. We would stay in the yard and let them deal with it. It's a different perspective, isn't it? You think about yeah. you think about driving an ambulance as, you know, Lord forbid, but when you think about driving an ambulance, helping people in car crashes, uh, help 911 calls for heart attacks and stuff, that's what you think about, right? Yeah. Way more to it. Way way more to it not only I mean you can you can talk about the runs you do from hospital to hospital I mean when I was still doing it we didn't have this huge big nice hospital that we have now we had a little 20 room ER that had been there since oh lord that hospital's been there since the 60s and um, you know you could take a lot to 
Paulding, but there was a lot you couldn't. You know, you, we didn't always pick up and take the Paulding Hospital. We'd go to Cobb or Kennestone, Grady, you know, just depending on the call. And um, I've had calls. Um, I'll never forget it. We It was 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, hadn't done nothing really all day long. And we picked up this guy who was 35 years old had never really had a history of anything to do with his heart, cardiac, or anything like that. And we picked him up, and we were going to take him to Piedmont Hospital, which is about 45 minutes that time of night, you know, maybe a little bit quicker. And I think I had been a paramedic for about two months. And I'm in the back riding with him, which going hospital, hospital is pretty typical. You know, you just ride back there, keep an eye on them, do a little bit of paperwork, take them to the other hospital, you're done. Well, all of a sudden, the next thing I know, we get, we're on, uh, we're on the interstate, and this guy codes. And coding means his heart stopped. He went into full cardiac arrest, and my partner can't really stop. And... It kind of at first freaked me out because the guy was just healthy. He was happy. We were talking, and then he just, that's it. He was flatlined. We never could get him back. Um, we would take some, uh, sometimes we take 1013s and things like that. I didn't really take a whole lot of them. Um, I had pretty good experiences with them. Like, you know, Cornbread said, you know, a lot of it's just talking to people you know and getting them to be calm and and you know because you don't know mentally what they're going through um i i was pretty lucky i think that was the only thing i ever really had happen to me doing a hospital to hospital transfer to be honest with you right um that yeah um that was part i think that was the only thing that ever really happened to me doing that do you ever uh think about it like that coney no, I didn't ever think about going. I, mean, I, I don't ever think about hospital to hospital. Well, well, I mean, what about the the mental crisis? No, I ain't never, I ain't never really thought about it like that. That uh, they shut down a lot of the mental hospitals here in Georgia. They did. I think there's only, um, I know there's Ridgeview still in Smyrna. Uh, there's a and there's a free one over in Cobb County. And there's one in Villa Rica, but a lot of the, a lot of them, yeah, they're gone. I yeah, think the, a lot the, of them's gone. The big one up at, that was up in Rome, I yeah. think. I think it closed down. I think I know the one, the biggest one, Milledgeville, yeah, closed down. Milledgeville closed down. Uh, so you got a lot of these people that are getting uh, treatment at uh, facilities. There was a couple of places in Dallas where these companies would rent out a house mm-hmm. and uh house four or five people I've, I've seen it up to 10 or 12 yeah and uh 10 or 12 people and that that were um being treated for mental illness and i'll never forget it the first time i experienced dealing with one of those places one of those houses was somebody did a 911 hang up there and mm-hmm. it was one of the residents just playing around yeah and i showed up and knocked on the door and the look on all those people's eyes uh was like oh my gosh i cannot believe the police was here you could tell that they were that they had had a lot of experiences with police having a 
having to wrestle them down and get them to the hospital. Mm-hmm. They were truly nervous. They were scared. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not knocking the the police that had dealt with them in the past, but it's just that, you know, it ain't the the gore and the you know, the stuff from the accidents and things like that when I think about uh EMTs and paramedics having to deal with it's it's that stuff that everybody else doesn't see. I mean that that other stuff messes with you too. But it you know, it used to bother me a good bit that here's somebody you got to help, but you gotta get pretty rough with them. Pretty I had the first the first um individual I dealt with uh out of training. He was schizophrenic. Yeah. And uh those are fun there's those are that's a different animal to deal with right there i went to uh i went to a call with a female officer lover to death um she was a corporal at the time and i went to the call and uh he he was saying he was the reincarnation of stevie ray vaughn i mean this was a shock to me being Mm -hmm. right out of my my road training Mm -hmm. my field training right out of the academy and i'd never really gotten any training on this was going to happen right you see what i'm saying oh yeah and uh we had talked about 1013s and uh what to do i knew the policy and procedure okay well here it was six o'clock in the morning mental crisis uh he's hollering and yelling he's the reincarnation of stevie ray vaughn uh he had baby Jesus in his bedroom, and we wasn't allowed to go up there. And I tried. I talked to that individual. No, oh, I bet I talked to him for an hour and a half. Yeah. Trying to get him to go in the ambulance, and it just wouldn't happen. Mm-mm. And his dad and mom both were there. They couldn't get him to go. Bless their hearts. Bless his heart. Um, and they said, look. Don't let him go to his bedroom because he has 50 baseball bats, 50 guitars. I mean, if, if he gets to his bedroom, he's going to come out with something. And um, I I wasn't getting anywhere with him. So I asked her to talk to him. Right. And I told her, I said, do not let him. Now, this isn't her fault. I said, but don't let him go to his bedroom. If you think he is, it's time to put hands on him. She talked to him. She let him go to his bedroom. Let him go to his bedroom. He went in there, slammed the door, locked the door. I uh, I said, look, I'm going to go up here and get him out. When he comes down these steps, do not touch him. It is time for him to go to the hospital. The long, they teach us the longer it goes on, the Where, risk goes up. The worse it's going to be. The, and we were way, way over that time limit. I mean, severely over that time limit. Now, when we had first arrived, the mother and father both had explained to us, look, he does not like police. He has been pepper sprayed in the past. He's jumped out the second story window and run. It was a big deal. They, they give us this whole spiel before we even meet him. 
So we was already tiptoeing around him, right? Which I believe was mistake one. Because we was already told that this could escalate, you know, sure enough, just because y'all were there. Uh, and that was part of that experience, right? Like I told you earlier, this being my first one. So I go up there. He opens the door to the bedroom for me. She's standing down at the bottom of the at the stairs. And I said, look. Now she, bless her heart, like I said, I love her to death. I'm not downing her a bit. Uh, she was about maybe five foot. Maybe five foot tall. And uh, so I didn't want him to get any distance on me and her grab him. And me have to close distance coming down these stairs. Because you know how it is trying to run down stairs oh, yeah. with all this equipment on me to where as I'm going up the stairs anyhow I'm hitting handrails and the walls so I go up there I get him to I talk him into coming down the stairs and he doesn't bring anything out of the, be the bedroom I said wow that's a win you know maybe, maybe this isn't going to be what I think it's going to be when he starts down those stairs he jumps probably half of the staircase and then the next jump was to the floor of the living room and she grabbed his arm and said we gotta go and as i was coming down those stairs he raised his hand back had his fist balled and as he is swinging i mean i, I could see it just like it happened right now as he is swinging to punch her in the face i get down there and i underhook both his arms and push him away from her and perfectly put him in the wall and the fight was on son the fight was on this dude I was six I'm six one at the time I was 250 he's like five five nine maybe 140 pounds you'd have thought I was wrestling Brock Lesnar <laughs> you know what I mean yeah uh, he ended up getting away from me he, he was standing on the couch hollering pitching a fit and uh, she pulled out her pepper spray I said do not pepper spray him don't do it uh, we can't do it I was a, I was worried as I was wrestling him that I was going to get the pepper spray in me and on my eyes um, pepper spray messes me up bad I'm real fair, fair complected I, when I got pepper sprayed during training, uh, I had about, how far do you think it was from the old dump to 113 on Rockmore? Oh, man. Um, I mean, the ride ain't but, what, 35 minutes? At least, yeah. It took me four hours to get home. Lord of mercy. I had to pull over so many times and wash my eyes because it scalded my eyes so bad. So I, I said, no, we're not going to pepper spray him. I said, I was trying to talk him off that couch because I pictured it in my head when I went over there to grab him. She called for backup. Uh, another officer got there. He's like, all right, man, what do you think? We talked it out. Couldn't get him to come off that. Uh, it's like a it's sort of like a love seat. He was just standing up there pitching a fit. I can't even tell you all the things he said. He was just irate. 
So he's been irate now for about 10 or 15 minutes, hollering, screaming at the top of his lungs at us. And uh, I told the officer that was there, I said, look, when we put hands on him, some somebody is getting kneed in the face. I could just tell by the way he was jumping that he was that he that he knew he was going to have the advantage. Yeah. And uh, I said, I think I think one of us needs to take his legs out from under him. No, you know, we don't want him to hit his head on the floor, and all that made sense. You know what I mean? I wish I'd have done that. Because when I went over there and we grabbed his arm, guess who ate that knee? You. I did. You did. And as I was falling to the ground, I know I was knocked out because the only thing I remember was opening my eyes right before my face hit the floor. And, of course, it broke my glasses. By the time I got up, he was on top of the other officer um, and had him in the headlock, had the other officer in the headlock. So I got up, got on top of him, put him in a Camorra, knew I was just going to have to break his arm uh, to get him off. And... Finally, uh, another deputy and another officer was able to get there and uh, was able to grab his legs. Because I was, my main thing then was trying to keep him from choking the other officer. He wasn't trying to choke him, but the fashion of the headlock he had him in, it would have been very possible. Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that I, I mean, I think that is an aspect of. Uh, an EMT and a paramedic's job that is not known. That is absolutely not known at all. Have you ever thought about it? No, because mostly when I know, like when I think of a ambulance man or EMT or whatever, I think, all right, you go there, you get them on a stretcher, put them in the back of the ambulance, take them to the hospital, unload them, go get the next one. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what I think. You you th- you think it's either going to be people that's incoherent, or people that's more than willing to to do what you ask them to yeah. do. Yeah, it's not the case. Mm-mm. Now I'm not saying in Dallas that that's an everyday thing, but mm-hmm. it's regular. It's it's very regular. I mean, at, at the time I was doing it, um, you know, methamphetamines had started to make a huge presence in Paulding County at that time and we took and I took so many classes on that stuff and I mean you don't never know how somebody's going to act on that and you know there's there's a lot more to it you know in school they teach you what you need to know at that point but when you get on that ambulance and you start doing it that's when you really learn the job yeah and I was very very lucky when I was uh still an EMT and uh getting ready to go through school that the partners that I had that I had were older guys who'd been in the business 15 20 years and taught me a lot of stuff that I had no clue about that I still remember to this day uh, one of my really good friends he was a um, firefighter paramedic in uh, LA County and uh, during the riots in LA and I'll never forget him telling me this he uh when the riots broke out, he took off and went three hours north to his mama's house. And he said, I'd been there about 30 minutes and the phone rang. And he said, I answered it, you know, not thinking, you know, what was going on. And he told me, he uh, picked the phone up and answered it and said, uh, you know, is this uh, 
Mr. Crawford, he goes, yeah, he goes, this is L.A. County Dispatch. We'll be sending a Montana SWAT team to come pick you up to get back to work. And he said they followed him all over the place through the riots. Um, but he loved working out here versus being out there. He said because here he got to be a paramedic. He said there, there everywhere, there was, a, there was a hospital around every corner. And he actually loved working out here because he got to use his skills and use what he was taught. He taught me a lot, man. He taught me a lot of stuff. So I guess he was saying there that the the field work wasn't as strenuous. He he wasn't getting to do the Mm-mm. the on hand stuff. Not that so he much the to. on hand stuff. Not some. Not really. Um, you know, out here, you know, you go to places out in you know Yorkville or Union. You 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 a pretty good distance away from any kind of hospital. And uh, you got to know your stuff and be on top of your game to, depending on the situation, to help that person or keep them alive or whatever it may be till you can get to a hospital. So, so it's you got, you're doing your job longer out here. Yes. Than you are out there where, whereas out there I guess it would be go pick them up. It would probably be just go pick them up and take them to the hospital. Yeah. He's Instead what of he just said. come pick them up watch over them for 35 minutes to an hour mm-hmm. or longer i don't know how long y'all had to drive sometimes but i guess you, i guess he's getting to use his like you said use his skills a lot more yeah i think uh emt and paramedics uh one of those first responders jobs where the the police and the firemen get the majority of the credit and uh it just ain't really realized what what they do as much you know what I'm saying? I'm, so it's like a very underrated job. I think so. Yeah, very think, underrated. Yeah, I think very I, underrated. Seen as underrated. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a it's a tough job, dude. Tough job. Yep. Well, there, there come a time, Cody, where you had to have an ambulance. Yes, sir. Sure did. What was up? Uh, on October the 24th of 2008. Uh, I had one of my my best friend in the world. He come down to visit from Kentucky. He was in the army, and we was gonna go out that night. And um, I had just acquired a Smith and Wesson Model Twenty Nine Forty Four Magnum. Looked just like the one that Clint Eastwood carried in the movie Dirty Harry. I said, you know, brought him in the room, showed it to him, unloaded, of course, and. Um, went to go uh went to go take a shower or let me back up uh he left the room and i loaded the gun back put it back up and uh went to go take a shower and when i come out of that shower and this was a complete accident all i remember is hearing the words gotcha and that gun went off and hit me about an inch to the right side of my belly button and we're talking there ain't 24 inches between my stomach and the barrel of that gun and um, it was an accident and I remember just being in complete shock like I couldn't believe like everything just happened in slow motion and uh, I remember kneeling down on the ground and um, I was you know started remembering my medical training and I put my hand over my, my stomach and pulled it away and it was just covered in blood and i'm like well this ain't good so i'm starting to think you know what artery did it hit what 
um, you know, what, what all could have happened. And my, my mother and my grandmother and uh, my friend were the ones at the house. Now, at this time, I lived in Burnt Hickory, which is, you know, 10 miles from downtown Dallas. And when it happened, they immediately called 911. You know, I was telling my family, you got to get me something to put over this. You know, I was trying to stay calm because I knew if it hit a major blood vessel, which I knew it had hit, if I got excited, if my adrenaline got up, I was just going to bleed faster. And, uh, of course, the sheriff's department comes in first because, you know, you know, right, with right. that, if there's, a, if there's a firearm involved, they're going to come in first. And um, not just a couple minutes later after that, here come the ambulance. And it was guys I knew, you know, it was guys I'd worked with. And they're just in shock. And I'm look, I remember looking, I was like, hey, I'm dying here. Y'all got to get, you know, you got to get going. And like, believe it or not, they just scooped me up, put me in the ambulance, and we took off. Um, I got to Paulden Hospital. And the doctor that was there that night was... It was his very first time working at Paulden Hospital, and I was his very first patient. And I rolled in there, I stayed conscious the whole time, all the way to the hospital. And when they rolled me into the trauma room, you know, you've got you got people coming at you from all directions. And um, I remember the doctor looking at me and saying, well, we're fixing to intubate you. That's where they put a tube down your throat to help you breathe. And I said, wait a minute. He said, we can't wait. I was like, well, you're going to have to. And I remember looking up and saying, you know, Lord, if it's my time to go, I'm ready. If not, just give me the strength to make it through it. And they give you a, a certain drug that puts you unconscious. And they put me on a ventilator, um, took me to Kennestone Hospital. My mama rode in the front of the ambulance. We get to Kennestone, and um, I go in surgery, and I'm in surgery two hours. And for something like that, if you're in surgery for two hours, that's not good. That's bad. And the doctor came out, and uh, by that time, my brother, my grandmother, my dad had all finally gotten there. And the doctor come out and uh, asked to speak to my family, and uh, brought him in there and said, "We just, he's not gonna make it." That was all she could say. And uh, my mama looked at her and said, "I don't accept that." And, you know, the doctor was just trying to be nice. I said, well, you know, I'm just trying to prepare you. She said, no, you don't know what God can do, and you don't know my son. And um, I spent 33 days in ICU. Almost three weeks of that, I was in a drug-induced coma and 75 days total initially at Kennestone Hospital. I had to learn. I, I come out of the coma on um, Thanksgiving Day that year. They put me in a room. Well, they put me in a room uh, on Thanksgiving Day. I had to learn how to sit up again, stand up again, walk again, eat again. Um, and when come home, I had to use a walker. And uh, the story to all that was was it was preventable. It could have been prevented, you know, just by somebody not using correct gun safety. When uh, what what caliber was it again? Forty four Magnum. 44 magnum 24 inches from your stomach mm -hmm. now you, you said uh that you had felt shock mm -hmm. was that from do you believe that was from the impact or just from 
you just realized what happened. Like, whoa, I got shot. Like, whoa, I got shot. Okay. Like, like everybody had asked me, he's like, well, what did it feel like? You know, did it burn? Did it do that? It didn't burn. The only way I could describe it is you give one of these fellas that, that compete in strongman competitions, you give them a 10-pound sledgehammer and let them swing it as hard as they can, let you hit you, let them hit you in the stomach with it, that's about what it felt like. I didn't have no burning or nothing. I was all the way to the hospital. I was like, you know, did this, did this seriously just happen? Like it was just because I opened that bathroom door and it was boom. That was it. And it was just, I was just in pure shock from all, just from that. So so the ride in the ambulance, you know, you talked about, you, you talked to the Lord mm-hmm. when you got to the hospital. The... Um, I'm sure your grandmother and your mother and your friend was, I mean, going crazy right after it happened. Yeah, my my mom is always, um, my mom's always, she was always one of them people that stayed cool under pressure. And it took a lot to really, really, truly upset my mama. And um, when I'm in the back of the ambulance, the guy that was looking after, looking after me, there was always a role when you was in in the ambulance. If people would look at you and say, am I going to die? You'd always tell them, not in my ambulance. And, um, you know, if you want to do that, do it in the hospital. Don't do it in my ambulance. And I remember looking at him because I knew what the answer was going to be. And I guess it was kind of comical to kind of help keep me calm. Was I looking at him and I said, Ken, am I going to die? He said, not in my ambulance. You're not. I said, okay. Um, I don't remember if my mom rode uh in the ambulance with us to the hospital or not because after after it all happened i didn't see any of my family till like three weeks later when i woke up out of the coma i didn't know what had happened right so the uh so when when you said that prayer uh before that doctor put the tube down your throat mm-hmm was you, was you in pain there i mean give us a little bit of your mindset if you can um I, I was in pain, and I, and I was, I was, I mean, it's just, I don't think you can describe that kind of pain. I mean, right. there, there's no way to describe it. And um, I sat there, I remember, like, it was like I was frozen, like I couldn't move. Like, I never took my hand off my stomach. I couldn't. It was like I just froze. And my mindset was, I thought I was going to die. I was like, this is it. I was 26 years old. I was like, this is, this is it. I was like, when they give me this stuff, it, it, I said that prayer, and I I talked to the Lord all the way to the hospital. I, all I could say, Lord, it's just, if it's my time, I'm ready. If it's my time, I'm ready. And uh, when they gave me that stuff, when I I remember closing my eyes, and when they, when they gave it to me, and I never expected it to open them again, um, I came to just a little bit being transported to Kennestone Hospital. And I think that was the scariest part because I'm completely paralyzed from the medications and the only thing I could do was hear. And I could hear enough, I was like, okay, well, I'm still alive, but I'm in the back of an ambulance, so at least I knew where I was. And then it wasn't nothing until I woke up. But oh yeah, I was hurting, I was hurting pretty bad. Right, So three weeks, right, three Mm -hmm. weeks later, you you wake up in the hospital. Yep. What, uh, What was that like? Um, so so you didn't have an exit wound? No, I did not have an exit wound. The, the bullet went in just to the right of my belly button, and it lodged. Um, the bullet took a downward angle because he was holding the gun at that angle. 
and it lodged right in front of my hip. Now, had it went straight through me, it probably would have blown my kidney through the bathroom wall. Right. So, no, I didn't have any exit wound. It went in, and it fragmented. And there's, you can, if you see it on an x-ray, there's in a group about, about the size of a grapefruit, and there's little pieces of metal everywhere. And there's one really big piece. What, that are still in you? Still in my hip, yeah. Okay. They so, didn't take them out. They said there wasn't no sense in it. So those are lodged in your hip. Mm-hmm. How deep inside your hip? Uh, right before my actual uh, hip bone, like literally right before it. I didn't. That was the amazing thing was I didn't have the first broken bone from any of that. No bones were damaged. I thought my hip would be shattered. It didn't. It stopped right before the bone, like literally right before it. So, so no organs or anything got hit? Well, no, I had organs get hit. Um, when the bullet went in initially, um, it damaged a foot and a half of my small intestine. They cut that, um, sewed, sewed it back together, put some holes in my large intestine that they repaired. It severed, um, it said it severed my femoral vein um, and it closed itself off and, and stopped bleeding. Um, it severed the tube right above my bladder that reads that uh, leads from your kidney to your bladder. I mean, it cut it clean off. And what was the worst of it was it nicked my iliac artery, which is on the crest of your pelvis. And if that thing gets damaged, just a 90% fatality rate. While I was there for the first two days, they gave me 56 units of blood from Friday night till Monday morning until they could go in and repair that damaged artery. How much blood's in a unit? Um, a pint. Okay. Yeah. So a fifty-six pint. pints. And how do you know how much how much blood's in the human body? A gallon. A gallon. A gallon. Mm-hmm. They basically kept a giant cooler with dry ice and blood in my room. When one one would run out, they was hanging another one. Okay. Wow. That's that's rough. Yeah. <laughs> no joke. So three weeks later, you wake up. Mm-hmm. And you realize, give us the mindset, you realize the the Lord said it wasn't your time. I remember it was it was kind of weird because it was it was literally like falling asleep and you wake up. And I remember they give you a drug to wake you up. And I remember, and I could still could not move. Like you, you lay there for three weeks, your muscles are done. You're not moving. And I actually still had the intubation tube in my throat to help me breathe and um, my body went through a, a lot of a trauma and I remember my eyes opening I couldn't do anything but just look to the right and look to the left and I'm looking around and I'm like it took me a minute to comprehend where I was and I'm looking and it just get clicked I'm like I'm in a hospital room and then I was like you know holy crap I'm alive like I lived through that like I couldn't believe it and then here come my family and uh my mama was the first one through the door and i wanted to talk to them but couldn't talk to them um i think a couple of days later they took that tube out of my throat and you have to you had to breathe uh they take the ventilator off and uh you have to breathe on your own for an hour and i stared at that clock for an hour and um, they said, okay. They deflate the tube and pulled it out. And the first things that I remember saying was, you know, thank you, God, for keeping me here. And then the next thing I said, where's my mama? And she come through, and we talked. And she's like, I was like, mama, how long have I been out? She said, about three weeks. I said, huh? She said, yeah, about three weeks. 
And, um, man, that was the greatest feeling, them taking that thing out of your throat because you can talk. Right. Uh, that was great. And, right. and you were still working. You were still a paramedic mm-hmm. at this time, right? Yeah, I was off that night. I was off that night. I was supposed to go in, but he was coming to see me. So I was like, I called him. I said, hey, can somebody cover my shift? And they were like, yeah. And the the ambulance, I don't know if you remember, um, right there in downtown Dallas, but behind what used to be House of China was where our station one was. Yeah. yeah. And that's the station I would have been at. And the guy that covered for me was the one that, the paramedic that covered for me was the one that worked on me. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, so uh, we're awake. We live through it. Mm-hmm. Glory, victory be to be to the Lord. Yep. Um, how much longer was you in the hospital? Um, I, I still stayed in ICU um, for about another week, week and a half. Um, there were some complications that, that came up. Um, I had a, a psychiatrist come in to see you, which is, you know, that's going to happen. And he's like, well, we think you have PTSD. And my thought was like, yeah, I probably do, you know. And a, a drug that they were giving me to help me was, was counteracting other drugs that they were having to give me. Um, and like you would talk to me and I would want to talk to you, but I couldn't. And um, they got me off of that. Um, and then my, my breathing started getting real erratic. Again, I was breathing like 40 times a minute, which is completely not normal. Um, so they had to go in and do a tracheotomy and that was to so they wouldn't have to intubate me again because I'm like you're not intubating me again you're not putting that tube down my throat so they did a tracheotomy um, and then about a week later they moved me up to a room it was literally it was on Thanksgiving day that year um, my mama God love her um, from the time I got shot to like two weeks before Christmas, never left that hospital, never left it. She stayed right there with me the whole time. Um, Every time I'd turn around, there was my mama, there was my mama. And you know, as we were talking about public safety earlier, um, a lot of people don't realize what a family unit that really is. I mean, between fire department, police department and, and EMS, the night I got shot, uh, we did not have an ambulance in the county except for one because everybody was up there with me. I used to have a notebook. There was 250 people the first night that came up there to make sure we were okay, to see if I was going to live, I guess, um, that came in and out. But I went out on, on Thanksgiving Day. That's a lot, lot of prayers. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of prayers. A lot. I've I've never taken credit um, for living through that. That was that was purely God's will to keep me here, because by all medical standards, I should not have lived that night. Nobody that I know of gets shot point blank with a forty four magnum, loses that amount of blood, and lives. I mean that I've ever heard of. Um, but it was a lot of prayers. A lot of prayers. Um. But I remember, I remember when they put me in the room, I couldn't see out a window, you know, and, and I was, I wanted to see out a window so bad, you know, cause I wanted to see what was going on, but, I, but I couldn't. And I was in there for a while. And, uh, the funny part about it was I had to learn how to eat again cause I could still, I could kind of use my left arm and I'm right handed. 
and they were they come in there and, and the nutritionist comes in and uh i remember my mama saying they're gonna let you have something to eat today well here i'm thinking you know like a meal mm. uh she brought in saltine crackers <laughs> and to <laughs> this day to this day that was the best saltine cracker i have ever eaten in my entire life and they couldn't even give me some potted meat or something no all uh-uh, that. just a plain <laughs> saltine cracker with water i guess yeah with a little bit of water ice, ice chips ice chips yeah I the 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 foods that because of getting shot that I can't stand anymore is I can't stand the sight of beef broth, jello, or chicken broth. I've ate enough of that stuff to float a battleship. So you you know you was you was talking about uh, about p- the PTSD. So they was they was assuming you was going to have that. I mean, right from the rip, right from r- the rip, from the from the word go. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long was it before the psychiatrist come to talk to you? Um, I think I'd been awake four days, four three, day. four days. So in that four days, mm-hmm. I mean, I know you was heavily medicated. Very. Well, what what was your thoughts about the actual experience then, or was you even having any? I I really I don't remember having much thought at that point because man, they had me on so many different medication stuff to keep you calm of course stuff to keep you 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 know you're out of pain and that was the main reason they put me in a a medical induced coma to start with because there would have been no amount of pain medication they could have given me to keep me out of pain so the best thing to do was to put me in a coma and let my body heal but i don't remember having a whole lot of thought about it i remember just the only thing I can remember when I woke up was just being happy I was able to wake up. You know, yeah. being I was like just looking around, like I cannot believe I lived through that. That was just like a daily thought, just a daily thought. So, so after after you're awake, what was the total time you was still in the house in ICU? Um, probably about a week and a half. Probably about ten days. I was still in ICU. Okay probably about like that so after icu do you get moved to another room i got moved to just a regular hospital room okay just a regular hospital room um and then they come in you know they start working with you they start getting you to to sit up because i wasn't paralyzed it's just my muscles were gone right and um i remember sitting up and i was like and it it wears you out it's just doing that little bit of work makes you feel like you just ran five miles and used every muscle in your body um had physical therapy come in to stand me up every day and i i won't forget this i was in there one day and my door bust open and here's this little five foot two girl comes walking in my door she said hey i'm your new physical therapist i said okay she says you're gonna walk today and i've only been standing up for about a week i said huh she goes yeah you're gonna walk today I said, okay. And she asked me, she goes, what's the one thing that you want more than anything right now? I said, I want to be able to look out a window. Because when you if you if you can't do certain things, it's the little bitty tiny things that you miss. Right. And um, they wheeled me up there. Now this woman put a towel over my eyes so I could not see out the windows going to the elevator. And then when we got up there, she left me in the hallway and closed all the blinds in the rehab room and she said if you walk and do good for me today i'll let you sit here for 10 minutes and look out the window i said okay and i took my first steps um i was probably about a week and a half to two weeks after 
Yeah, about the first of December was when I first started to to sort of kind of walk again. And um, she did. She set me down and opened up all the blinds, and you just look at it, Kennesaw Mountain. And the night I got shot, it was cold, it was cloudy, and it was raining. And the first time I got to look outside, it was cold, it was cloudy, and it was raining. Right. So it was like just nothing just stopped. I'm like, you know, I'm looking around. It's like, did anything change while I was gone, you know? Right. And um, that went on for a while. Um, and, you know, they have to – you still have to – you're still eating a lot of pain medication. And they moved me to – finally moved me to a rehab floor. And uh, this is about – maybe the first of january they moved me to a rehab floor and uh i was i had been gone all this time i was ready to go home i was like you know what i'm sick of being in this hospital i'm ready to go home and i knew if i was going to get better i'd have to push myself further than than what they were telling me to do every day and i get up there and it was also kind of scary because when you get on the rehab floor nobody can stay with you you can't have family you can have visitors but nobody can stay with you and i went from having somebody with me every night to not having anybody and uh started doing the rehab you know started you know walking again and the only long lasting effect that i had and still have today is i lost all feeling in my right foot because the bullet uh damaged a bunch of nerves and so I started learning to walk again, and they tell you to walk by the tiles in the in the ceiling. So each tile's like two feet by two feet. If they told me to walk 40 tiles, I'd walk 100. If they told me to walk 50, I'd walk 150 because I wanted to go home. And uh, the one thing I wanted to see was my dog. I'd seen all my family. I wanted to see my dog. And uh, I got better. They, they told me initially, it's like, well, you'll be here about four to six weeks. I said, I'm walking out of this hospital in 10 days. Well, we don't want you to get your hopes up or anything. I said, I'm walking out of this hospital in 10 days. 10 days later, they wheeled me to the front entrance of Kenstone Hospital. I stood up with a walker and walked to the car. Get you some of that, Raccoonie. Yeah, that's determination right there. Four to six weeks. Now I'm going to the house in 10 days. I got what kind of dog was I? I mean, I'm I'm thinking this dog is about to just be the, the, the champion of all dogs. Let's hear it, Cody. <laughs> she was a wolf husky mix. Oh, I can get with that. We got to get. <laughs> I was really expecting her to say, "Here's a Jack Russell." <laughs> no, no. <laughs> if if he would have said Chihuahua or Pomeranian, I shit zoo. I'd been like, "What?" <laughs> I am not a Pomeranian type of guy at all. <laughs> if you look at Cody, you don't you don't think Pomeranian? No, no. Think polar bear, wolf yeah. host. What was her name? <laughs> Rosie. Rosie. How yeah. long had you had her? Oh, man. I'd had Rosie probably seven or eight years, and she was the best dog. Man, she wouldn't eat dog food. She would not eat dog food. She'd eat raw meat, or she'd go kill a rabbit or a squirrel or something, and that's what she would eat. You put dog food in front of her, she'd turn it over. She wouldn't. She didn't want nothing to do so with it. So you was feeding her hamburger meat. Yeah. There you go. It's the only thing she'd eat. Every once in a while, she'd walk up with... Uh, she walked up with a baby deer one time, little bitty one, like probably had just dropped out, and she just then brought it to the house and just went to gnawing on that thing. Killed it. Killed it. And bone, Rosie. <laughs> and the night I got shot, she come running in the house and laid on top of me and would not let nobody near me. My mama had to open my bedroom door 
to let her in it. And then when uh, when when sheriff's department and fire and EMS started showing up, she started demolishing that door. She wanted out. She didn't want nothing to do with it. Right. So, so we're back home with Rosie now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we 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 beat the uh, the time frame the hospital had put on us to four to six weeks. We we come on to the house in ten days. Mm-hmm. Back home with Rosie. What uh, what was your recovery then? I mean, what was the time frame? Um, I was still walking with a walker. Um, the the first two years I was home were the roughest. I spent more, probably more time at the hospital than I did at home. I still had to have more surgeries. Um, but by the time uh, I came home in January, I didn't have to have my first major surgery again until July of that year of, of 2009. Um, I still was kind of walking with a walker and my brother had kind of moved back home at that point and he walked up to me one day and said, why are you still using this walker? I was like, well, so I don't fall and, you know, stuff like that. And he snatched it out from in front of me and I hit the deck, hit the ground. And I'm like, you know, I'm mad. I'm like, what did you do that for? He said, you don't need that thing anymore. And he handed me one of them wide four prong canes and said, start using this. So I started using it. About three weeks later, I'm walking through the house and he kicks it out of my hand. I hit the ground again. And I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, you don't need that no more. Where's Rosie at? I feel like Rosie's going to be jumping on you, brother. Yeah, yeah well, really. she I had to keep her outside at that point because for some unknown reason, every dog I ever owned hated my brother with a passion. <laughs> and she couldn't, he couldn't be around her. He'd right. actually have to come up to the, uh, when he'd come up to the house, he would park. He would look, you know, look around, see where she was. And he'd always have to bring like a bag of potato chips or something and throw them out in the yard to distract her so he could run into the house. Right. She couldn't stand him. So so, so you're on the floor. Uh, mm-hmm. Got the cane kicked out from under you. Yep. Now you're going to walk without the cane. Um, they had given me a a, a brace to wear, to wear on my right leg, and uh, he would help me walk a lot. And my, my brother was pretty instrumental in you know getting me out of the house and getting me to go places and and, and things like that and you know because you don't sit in the house and be cooped up for so long you want to get out you want to do things right you want to somewhat get back to normal he was the first one to you know initially try to let me drive again which was an utter catastrophe well, let, let me ask you this you had to you had to drive in the hospital mm-hmm. um to get out of that hospital uh, way, way ahead of the allotted time, way, way before they they wanted you to. Yeah. When you got home, I mean, what was your mental state? That what was the reason your brother was doing that? Was there, was you getting depressed? Was it okay? I'm home now. I ain't got to. Uh, I ain't got to work as hard. I mean, I, I think I got comfortable, and and at first it was had a lot of nightmares i guess what you would call ptsd because i had to every time i had to look at that spot where it happened every night every day two or three times a day and um i just got kind of lax you know i kind of got depressed i was like i didn't even want to get up because i didn't want to look in that direction and he was like you know no you're gonna you're gonna get up you're gonna do this you know you he goes we wasn't taught to lay around you're gonna get up you're gonna walk and um 
you know, even little things. Like, we'd go to Walmart. Like, it would wear me out just walking from the truck, you know, to the door. Right. And, um, you know, I'd ride around them with them little <laughs> carts. You know, that's the only thing I could really do. And uh, we'd, we'd do that. And it, a lot, it started getting better the more I started getting out of the house. Right. You know, um, I was in... I was in a pretty dark place at first when I came home because, you know, I almost died right here and I didn't really want to look at it. Like I just, I couldn't, I really couldn't for a long, long time. Couldn't right. look at that spot. That, uh, so brought your brothers, did he live with you? Yeah. He had, uh, he had moved back home for a little while. He wasn't living there at the time. Um, he had just had a little, his little girl, and um he had moved back home for a little bit i think they were having some issues and he had you know come back home um in january i think later late january first of february of 09 is when he came back but he wasn't there that night no all right how about you buddy yeah uh what what was the relationship when was from from the time of the gunshot uh how long was it before you spoke with him i spoke to him maybe once or twice because I mean, I was I was mad. I was angry. You know, it was a. It, we both grew up around firearms. He had just uh, spent a few years in the Marine Corps. He spent seven years in the Marine Corps before we transferred to the Army. And we both knew gun safety. You know, it was a preventable accident. I was very mad and very bitter. And I didn't speak to him for regularly for about six years. I, I wow. couldn't bring myself to do it. Couldn't bring yourself to forgive him. Uh, that took a lot of. I think in a way I forgave him, but I just I couldn't I couldn't talk to him yet the way that we talked when we were, you know, before it all happened. Right. So you become more of an acquaintance yeah. than a friend. It, it became more of an acquaintance than a friendship. Yeah. So uh, you forgave him, but you couldn't. Maybe did you feel it wasn't reconciled? I felt well, like um, between between both of you. I had forgave him. I think when it became reconciled was I had forgave him in my heart, but I had not told him I forgave him. Right. And I called him one day. He was he was home because um, he did a couple. He went to Iraq, went to Afghanistan for his job in, in, the, in the army, and he came home and he and I called him and knew he was home. And I told him I called him up and I said, you know, I'm glad you made it home. Glad you made it home safe and. Um, I told him, I said, I just want to tell you that I love you and that I forgive you for what happened. And it just, he broke down, I broke down. And, um, you know, we're, we still talk from time to time, but that, I think that was the point from it went from back from acquaintance to back to being a friendship. And it, it wasn't as still as not being as close as we were, but we talked a lot more. Right. Right. And did he, did he ever try to reach out and talk to you? While, while you're like, I guess, during that time period of you didn't really want to talk to him, did he ever try to reach out and talk to you and you just kind of blow him off? Some, yeah, some. And, of course, too, you know, he, he got, when he was in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was kind of hard for him to I talk. I didn't really know how to communicate with him. You know, Facebook at the time was just getting its lift off and nobody really had Messenger. You couldn't do all the things you can do with it now. Um didn't have an address for him or anything like that and um when he came home 
he would come home and he would come and see me but when he he would come and see me i could talk to him but my anxiety level would go up you know and i later found out that he went through a lot emotionally himself and i guess the way he dealt with things the way i dealt with things could have been been done maybe a little better yeah i think so but um he kept he he went through a lot mentally too he and he told me some years later he's like i just tried to hide and work he goes because i almost killed my best friend and i was like i don't know what that part of it was like i was like i know what i went through but we we eventually reconciled everything so right that's i mean there's victory in that there is victory victory to the lord y'all still talk to this day i saw him last uh not this past christmas but the christmas before last he was he's fixing to retire out i talked to him on facebook from time to time he had one more tour afghanistan to do and he could come home dandy when y'all talk do y'all ever joke about what happened like uh, not so much joke we talk about it the last time i saw him um was at his uh brother's house when i was living in bremen and uh he said hey levi's coming home i was like all right i'll come over there now you have to remember me and him and his brother and my brother we were i mean if you saw one you saw all of us we were that close we were we were family that was my like my brother might as well have been my brother and uh we talked about it and uh we don't really talk about it much anymore we didn't talk about it in the end because it had you know i think we both moved on from it yeah and uh i wished him the best and you know told him i'd keep in touch and you know, sit and talk to him for about. It. We reminisced about when we were kids and all the dumb stuff we used to do. So, right, but so, that never really gets brought up. The uh, let's talk about what, like you said, there was some gun safety rules that was just slap dab ignored. Absolutely. So, in listening to the story, it is clear that the gun was loaded without him knowing it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and we ain't knocking on on you, buddy, at all. It's it's awful what happened. Uh, but there's some there's some underlining rules that just shouldn't be broke when it comes with a gun. Right. I mean, you agree, right? Absolutely, Coney. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Always treat a gun as it's loaded. Always. Yep. Uh, that was broke. Keep a gun pointed in a safe direction. Yeah, that you know when learning gun safety rules coming up as a kid, mm-hmm. um, like you said, hunting stuff like that, yeah. they become so uh, such habit. So much. This doesn't compare to what happened to Cody, but you remember when we was pressure washing the screener the other day. With, mm-hmm. with the big high-powered pressure washer yeah and had the wand off of it uh and you know that that handle is fashioned as a gun yeah uh when i use that thing because it's fashioned as a gun i i had the same principles with that i noticed that one of the guys turned around and you know, didn't do it on purpose and pointed that gun at the that pressure washer gun at one of the other guys that was helping it freaked me out yeah i find find myself too when even when i'm using the pressure washer we got here at the house i mean i find myself 
when I'm not using it, I find myself pointing it towards the ground, yeah, off to the side. Yeah, yeah. And, you know that comes from experience and handling guns so much, and it comes from really, really studying, really being shown, yeah, uh, correcting bad behavior immediately, and you that pressure washer without that wand on it or with the wand on it if you accidentally hit that oh, trigger oh yeah it'll cut it'll cut somebody now, it'll you. we're talking a pressure washer that's on the trailer i don't even know how many horsepower that motor I is i know that one we got here at the house is 1400 psi but that on that trailer we but got that, it work but it's, that the one on the trailer is like an industrial pressure washer yeah so keep the gun pointed in a safe direction that was broke always keep the safety on keep yep. ready to shoot keep your finger off, off the, the trigger, trigger. And I, and I guess I kind of left that part out. What had happened was he caught the hammer back on the gun. Yeah. Not knowing that I had reloaded it. Because I never expected him to go back in my room and mess with it. I don't guess anybody does because I would put it back in my gun safe. And he caught the hammer back for some reason. And when he said, gotcha, what he said he was trying to do was ease that hammer back forward and it slipped. And when it slipped, it was just enough for it to go off and hit me. Wow. Never point a gun at anything you don't intend to destroy. Absolutely. That was broke. Um, you know, people talk of always keep a gun unloaded until you're ready to use it. Uh, I have a different opinion on that. Myself. I do, too. Uh, Especially when it comes for protection purposes to me a gun's no good if it's not loaded yeah just a piece of metal if i have a a gun for protection purposes you can bet your sweet tail that everybody that comes around me is going to know that that gun right there is no, no joke it is not a toy it is not to be touched that is mine and that's what it is. I remember, and you still tell us today, if we got to go in your room and grab something, we know where you keep the forty four. Right. And Mama's little pistol you bought her, I don't know if that one stays loaded or not, but you're every time you tell us to go in there and grab something, you're saying, don't be messing with that gun. Yeah, don't don't even get around it. No, you, you, don't, you really don't even like us going in there and messing with the guns, just messing with them, playing right. around, not playing around, but... Going in there and checking them out and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, we don't do that. And the, only, the only time, because really the only time you need to be checking out a gun is if you're cleaning it. Cleaning or making sure it's it's working fine right. and it's yeah. ready to go because you're going to go hunting or you're, right. you're going to end up using it soon. We double and triple check our guns before we put them up. Make sure they're unloaded. We double and triple check when we get them to put them in the truck. Yep. Uh, and... I mean, you can attest to this. The whole time we're hunting, if you're hunting by yourself, I'm constantly texting you. Oh, yeah. Gun safety. Gun safety. You cannot push that in. Those are mistakes that you don't get back. Mm -mm. Those are mistakes that take people's lives, put people in the hospital for how many months, Cody? I was in there over three months. Uh, And I'm sure your friend that, that, that shot you on accident, I'm sure he was thinking... If, if he dies right now, I could be charged with something. Yeah. I could be charged with murder. Or I'm not sure how that would play out, but I mean. How, I mean, how was that when did they, 
What, was there anything that went on? I mean, we know no, it was an accident. Um, there was a report made because the last thing I said when I went out the door was a um, sheriff's deputy was standing right here said, don't take him to jail. It was a complete accident. And that was the last thing. I, he, I don't think he he filled out a report, you know, and, and nothing ever came out of it that way. So, so when you were when you were fully recovered and you had your, your mind back and everything, mm-hmm. did, did the sheriffs or anything come in there to – ask any more questions or nope. anything about it I, I never the last time next time i saw the sheriff's department was when i went to go get my gun back what what uh do you still have that gun no um i i got rid of it because i wanted something else at the time uh i really couldn't i really didn't want to look at one for a while which i think was you know that's kind of normal so was it was it tough for you to go back and get it? Oh well, did you have that thought of and eh, maybe i should just let them keep it no because i had like I said, you know, I grew up, you know, hunting and fishing and loved guns, you know, love them. And I love them to this day. And uh, I remember going to my gun cabinet and I had this old Turkish Mauser, 8mm Mauser. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what, I'm tired of being afraid of guns. And I lived at the time, I lived out in the middle of nowhere and there was, and I had this big dirt berm back there where we used to shoot. I was like, you know what, I'm tired of being afraid of this. So I reached in there, and I don't know if you've ever shot an eight millimeter Mauser or not, but I loaded that I loaded that Joker down with five rounds, and I could barely—it's you know—it's a long gun, and I could barely pick it up, and I just popped all five rounds off as fast as I could, and every bit of that fear went away. And I think a week later, I told my mom, "I was like, I want to go get my gun back." Now she wasn't too keen on it, yeah, and she, but she understood. And I went and got it back, and I think I later sold it to my uncle because I wanted something else. I couldn't remember what I bought after that, but yeah, I had to get over that fear. There's so many more uh, gun do's and don'ts, yeah, uh, that we could talk about. Uh, but those I feel are the key key things that yeah. that got uh, thrown to the wayside that caused that to happen you feel there's anything other than that cody well i mean you for one you don't ever joke around with any kind of firearm i don't care if it's loaded unloaded or or anything else and you know he had plenty of weapons training and 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 things like that i I think the joking around not ever wanting to point a gun at something you don't intend to completely destroy you know that's the two main that's the two main things you know number one check and see if a gun's loaded you know above all things um you can't depend on the safety either no no i mean it it just it's not an option to play with a firearm it is not an option Mm -mm. at all period and you know I'm, i'm not trying to knock on cody's buddy but it is ridiculous. Oh yeah. If uh, yeah, man, yeah. I hate that happened. Uh, it's a true testament that that the Lord wants you here. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I ain't trying to put you on the spot, but I mean, when when did that hit you? Um, the part of God keeping me here. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I guess I struggled with that too for a really long time. I struggled. I was like, you know, what's my purpose? What? Why? Why keep me here? Right. And when I started, I think it finally hit me. 
um, when I started doing the furniture, you know, because I, I just kind of fell into doing it. You know, I really wasn't expecting it to go anywhere. I just doing it so I could get out of the house and have something to do. Right. And I remember, I guess it was probably like maybe the 10th dining table I built. Um, I took it to these people. They were, you know, a young couple. They just bought their house. They was just starting out. They wanted a hand-built dining table. And I took it and delivered it to them. And the look on their face when you when you brought it in there, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to get to take, you know, a bunch of raw boards and and, and turn them into a piece of furniture. But the look on their face and she's crying he's so happy they were like you know this is our first big piece of furniture we put in our house and i was like you know what maybe that's it maybe it's to 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 give this gift of, of stuff to other people to, to bring them joy um you know or, or things like that and i still i think that was one reason um i think another um another reason is you know just to maybe share my story to encourage other people you know, to um, to share my testimony of what I what I went through and had to went through and and things like that. If nothing else, you know, not even the furniture. If nothing else, just to share my testimony to be able to encourage other people. I think that's my purpose. So, so when when you got fully recovered from the gunshot, mm -hmm. did did you go back to working as a paramedic for an amount of time? Or no, no, I couldn't because um, you have to renew your numbers every year. Okay. And I was supposed to renew them the first of November, and I got this kind of can't really do that if you're in a coma. So yeah. <laughs> my, I, I lost mine and 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 let them go. And you know, like I said, I was in and out of the hospital so much. Um, I just recently had. My twentieth abdominal surgery since two thousand eight. After getting out of the hospital the first time, twentieth mm -hmm. abdominal surgery, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, that was for an infection that yeah. it set up. Yeah, the nineteenth one was for an mm -hmm. infection. The twentieth one was for my gallbladder. But all caused. All caused from that. From the gunshot. Mm -hmm. so. That um. Well, it's just a and it uh bad example uh it's 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 victory in the fact that cody is still alive here the lord mm -hmm. um a hundred percent and i'm I'm glad of that it's a true blessing man a hundred percent thank you um but if there is ever an example of why you should not play around with something uh I mean, what happened to Cody is on the top of the list. On the top of the list. You know, there's just some things you don't do. You do not play around in a motor vehicle on the road. You do not play with guns. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the list is endless because you can hurt, kill yourself or somebody else. And if not, like Cody, you've got 12, 13 years of your life. That it's just living most of it from a hospital. The people that I've taught gun safety to, one of the main things I've always told them is once that bullet leaves that barrel, you can't take it back. You can't. You can't stop nope. it. There's no stopping it. Yeah. There's nothing. It. Uh, I, I'd seen a lot of accidents uh, when I was policing, and I'd seen a lot of intentional gunshots. Ain't none of them pretty. Mm-mm. 
ain't none of them pretty. And the, um, I remember when I was in the police academy, uh, they had a doctor that come in. I want to say it was from Grady Memorial. It was one of those hospitals downtown Atlanta. Yeah. That had treated hundreds upon hundreds of gunshot wounds. Right. And uh, he had the, the class raise their hand on which departments toted nine millimeters. And they raised their hands and which ones toted 40s and which ones toted 45s. Mm-hmm. And uh, at Dallas, we toted uh, S&W 45s. Right. He had toted, He had treated hundreds upon hundreds of gunshot victims, and he said he never worked on anyone that had been shot by a forty-five. You know why? Because they don't make it. They didn't make it. Mm-hmm. A forty-four caliber round mm-hmm. to the stomach. No, nobody can sit here and tell me that that's not the Lord for Cody being here today. Can't tell me that. Like, like like Cody said, by any aspect you look at it from a medical from a medical standpoint, he was dead. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually I actually clinically died one time for about they said about forty five seconds. I clinically died, and really? God still saw fit to keep me here. Well, you know it's, and he's right. You know, you do, the doctor tells you, you know, why you never see anybody live from one that shot with a forty five. That's a big chunk of lead coming at somebody. Yeah. And at I a very had fast pace. at a very fast pace. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Georgia Arms and bought any of their ammunition, but they used to do some of them, like they used to call them deer stopper hollow points. And they had some in a 44 mag, and that's what I had loaded in that gun. Wow. I was going deer hunt with it that year. Right. And, uh, yeah. It, uh, that, that, there has been people survived a, a 45 oh, yeah. caliber. You know, yeah. that, that's just... That stuck out with me when that doctor was was speaking on gunshots and um, uh, any you know you know a twenty two kills people. Oh yeah, BB guns kill people. That that's like when we were talking all the gun safety stuff we just talked about. That's that needs that that has to be practiced with everything. Oh, mm-hmm. ac- yeah, Every, absolutely. Airsoft gun, BB paintball. gun, paintball anything, gun, anything, right? Anything that's got any type of bows. Even yeah. bows. Oh, absolutely. People don't think about a bow like that either. Right. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You oh. have to keep it's it's good to keep that thing pointed away at all times too cuz a broadhead on a on an arrow you if you swung that bow around not even pulled back and that caught somebody somebody on the side of the throat or something. Oh, go go through you. No. no. Oh. Hit in a field tip, son. It yeah. don't have to be a broadhead. A field tip. I actually ran a call with a guy that got shot right in the calf muscle with one that was, that was a field tip. It's just him and his buddy was out shooting. I can't remember exactly what happened, but he did, and it was just in one side and out the other part of his calf, and it was a field tip. And I remember telling him, I said, you better be lucky, because if that was a broad head, it was, he said, I said, you'd have bled to death before we'd have got here. Right. I mean, it's just, it's anything. It's, it's any kind of weapon. It don't matter if it's a pocket knife. You treat it. You know, gingerly, and I can't really say much because every time I sharpen a pocket knife, I wind up cutting myself in the next 30 minutes with it. But but you ain't going to whip out a pocket knife, open the blade up on it, and start acting like you're going to slice somebody. No. Yeah. Yeah. You treat every weapon as if it's a, what it is. It's a weapon, you know. That's right. And it's never harmless until it, it's it's 
it's never dangerous till you put it in somebody's hand. And when you put it in somebody's hand, that's when it becomes dangerous. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's the person, not the thing. Yep. Exactly. It's the person, yep. not the thing. Accidental or intentional. You know what I mean? It's human. Mm-hmm. That's 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 that, what that, that gun can't shoot unless something pulls the trigger. That's right. That mm-hmm. knife can't stab unless something pushes it into something. Yeah, true that. Well, Cody, I know uh, you got to go to the hospital tomorrow. Yep. Uh, your grandmama's in the hospital. We're, yep. We're praying for her. Yep. Your wife, my sister's having surgery tomorrow. I'm uh, not trying to make fun of you, but with all your surgeries, I mean, you pretty much live at the hospital. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. What do you do? Just buy like a, a membership? There I think or something you can now? start renting rooms <laughs> for a certain amount for you know a, a little bit every time. But right. I, th- I think the only other second longest stint that I stayed was um, I kept having a, a lot of trouble with bowel obstructions. And I spent 65 days in the hospital and never ate solid food for 65 straight days. And all I did was watch the Food Network. Wow. Well, not me. Nope. Put on Disney Channel or something. I ain't watching the Food Network. That's all all I watch. Mashed potatoes and pudding. Wow. (laughs) When I got better, I stopped at that sushi place up in Hiram, ordered $50 worth of sushi and didn't quit till I ate every bite of it. I was starving. Sushi? You talking about having some bowel trouble, man. Hey, that was the first thing I could stop at because I really didn't want a hamburger, and for some reason, that's all I thought about. I, and I don't know why I watched the Food Network because it was like mental torture. So, but uh, wow. Well, why? We, we need we need to let uh we need to let Cody go. We can't keep him here all night, Raccoonie. No. You got anything else? No. No. Don't point the gun at people. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, don't, be safe. Don't play with a gun. As at Daddy all. says, every time we go hunting, gun safety. Gun, gun safety. safety. Gun that's safety. The most, that's the most Daddy, important thing. Every time we get in the truck, we're turning at the light up here. Daddy says, "What's the three rules? Gun safety. Gun safety. Gun safety." That's it. That's a successful hunt. Everybody comes back to the house unscathed. That's right. Yep. Uh, you know, from anything falling down, gun safety anything but uh cody i'm glad you come on man i appreciate, I appreciate you sharing it. your sharing your story with us i look forward to fishing with you some more yeah we got to do that yeah we'll get back on them bass Co- show cooney how to do it cooney whooped our tail last time he did, did but the first time y'all caught me y'all might have caught more than i did but i caught the biggest one whoa we got you right cooney yeah. All right, let's see how that holds I, up. I, I, th- <laughs> I, I think y'all going to have to bring a digital scale. I think we're going to have to. I think so. Yeah. Might pick one up when I go get me a bow release. There you go. Well, all right, I ain't got nothing else. I guess we'll holler at y'all. Me neither. Me either. Deuces.